Hello everyone and welcome to the latest St. John's Chambers podcast. I'm James Marrick and I'm joined by my colleague in Chambers, Ben Handy, today. Good afternoon, Ben. Hi, James. And we're here for today's podcast to talk all about employers' liability claims. The aim, as always, is to discuss some of the latest cases to try to identify some common themes and issues which may be of relevance to everyone's day-to-day caseloads, whilst hopefully giving a refresher on some more established principles. I suppose the first stop press we need to give is that there's not been many appellate reported cases in this area in the last couple of years, Ben. No, it looks that way. A lot of the authorities are high court, aren't they? Indeed. So um, I think we're going to look at um, a few of the, the more recent high court cases, including those of Chadwick and Lewin and Gray, because they're good examples of some of the issues we see in our EL caseloads. Perhaps after that, we'll go on to look at the very interesting high court decision in Carr and Brand, which is the latest must-know case on the arguability of claims where a director of a company suffers personal injury. And I suspect that could be one bound for the appellate courts. But I wonder, Ben, if we start with the case of Chadwick. Yeah, sure, James. Chadwick was an authority from the middle of last year that touched on several of the issues that arise frequently in employers' liability claims. And it was one of those cases where the defendants who were here unrepresented do their best to actively muddy the water as to who out of a number of potential defendants was responsible for a site. Here it was an an airfield and the first defendant had contracted with the owners of some aircraft to effectively demolish them and sell the metal for scrap. Through a sort of murky series of agreements between various companies, the claimant found himself dismantling a plane using an angle grinder when he was cutting through a metal panel and managed to hit an oxygen cylinder, uh, which went kaboom. Doesn't sound naturally like best practice, Ben. No, that's a fair point, James. You won't be surprised to hear that the claimant won this one with um, a fair bit of assistance from the judge who saw through the two defendants' many and varied attempts to pass the buck to companies that no longer existed. The bottom line was that a competent and qualified person should have conducted a safety inspection some point before starting dismantling work, and they would have found this cylinder if they had, but no such inspection was carried out. So I suppose what was argued by the defendants is that the claimant himself was such a competent and qualified person. (laughs) Um, No, not really. The defence in this case was one you do come across from time to time and will arise again in one of the other authorities we look at, which was while the claimant's instructions might not have been perfect, had he followed them to the letter, the accident never would have happened. So here, his, I suppose, line manager, second defendant, told him to go and cut through some rivets that were holding this, this metal panel in place. And the claimant tried to do that the way that the second defendant had suggested he did it and uh, unfortunately found that that didn't do the job. So using his initiative, he used a bigger, more powerful, larger angle grinder to start cutting through the metal panel itself. And it was then that the accident happened. You mentioned a couple of defendants, Ben. So what's the relevant background and what's the analysis on the employment relationship and the duty owed? 
So the first defendant company obviously had approached this airfield, having noticed that there were some derelict aircraft lying there and agreed this contract with them to remove them. And they had a contract, probably a pretty generic one, with the airfield owners that said they would demolish the planes and they would be responsible for risk assessments and insurance and things like that. They then, it looks like, subcontracted with various different companies to actually do the work. And those companies, in turn, then brought on a load of different individuals, including the claimant himself, to do the manual labour. So it's one of those cases where there are loads of different companies potentially involved. You can imagine the claimant solicitors sitting there on day one trying to work out who to sue. And the defendants were not the most forthcoming with the true relationships. And so the court had to look through the weeds and try and disentangle what they were saying. To the extent that the second defendant, even at trial, came up with a new argument that he in fact was the employee of another company that had since ceased trading. And so he couldn't possibly be responsible for the claimant's well-being himself. And I think that defendant, second defendant, they're found at trial to be employer. So there's an employer-employee relationship. Consequently follows that duty of care is owed in the conventional way. What about D1? Presumably D1 has argued along the lines of we subcontracted this to other contractors, including potentially employer, to deal with matters. Yeah, exactly. An absolute dearth of paperwork. The only paperwork that was disclosed was this initial contract between D1 and Airfield, which still put the onus on D1 in terms of health and safety obligations. And D1 clearly didn't do anything like enough to show that they had properly and thoughtfully handed those obligations on. So even though D1 were in the court's words, hands off, and nobody from D1 was present generally day to day to supervise, for instance, the claimant's work, and they weren't there at the time of the accident, the court still said, well, hang on, you were responsible on the contract for arranging things like health and safety risk assessments and so on. So the fact that D2 might owe the claimant a duty does not get D1 off the hook. I suppose the watchword is always is control, isn't it? Ultimately, yes. they've got that high-level control. An analogy probably with a principal contractor on a construction site in some ways. They can't wash their hands of things, can they? No, exactly. So although in your construction design and management type cases, you've got a bit more of an explicit set of regulations that determines which contractor might be responsible for what things, and particularly the responsibilities of your principal contractor, the same principles can be applied to cases that don't occur on construction sites, which this was. And the key point for those of us in practice, of course, is Section 4 of the Health and Safety at Work Act that imposes a duty on any person who has control to any extent and therefore explicitly contemplates that more than one person might owe duties at the same time. Because we often find ourselves, don't we, wondering, oh, should I sue this person or that person or more than one or two or three? And actually, the answer is sometimes all of them.
the, the classic example I've seen a lot in recent cases is where employee is sent to third party sites and there's control still retained by the employer in some respects, but then site owner, occupier has control over certain aspects of the site. And I think one of the other cases we'll look at deals with, with that in a little bit more detail. So we've got duty established, again, I think fairly conventional and not unexpected in the end. What then about duty and its interaction with statutory duty, Ben? We have, in this case, the argument which comes from the repeal of civil liability for the regulations, don't we? And its interaction with the the standard level and nature of the duty of care owed. Yeah, you see this discussed very regularly now, don't you, in judgments. And there haven't been many authorities on it, but you often see Cockrell mentioned. And then the dissent in Tonkins from Judge Gore. And I think we'll be looking at another case shortly, won't we? in which it's been explored again. But the preferred position seems to be generally that while civil liability no longer automatically flows from breach of regulatory duties, the regulations still inform the standard. Yes, and that's the analysis in this case, isn't it? And I think that's the conventional analysis now. We still await a definitive appellate decision on this issue, but it's more often than not now pleaded in such terms i.e. these regulations applied, they inform the standard of care on the basis that civil liability no longer automatically flows. One of the issues which came up in this case was risk assessments, and it's often it's a feature of, of most, if not all, employers' liability cases, and certainly has been since the days of, sort of Kunjol and Allison. What issues on risk assessments did come up in Chadwick? It looks like the first defendant had conducted a risk assessment of some kind. Whatever that concluded, it certainly didn't conclude that they were going to carry out a inspection of the aircraft before they let the claimant loosen it with a angle grinder. They said they were going to carry out a safety inspection at a later point in the demolition, but the court gave that very short shrift for obvious reasons, because clearly, if you've got someone with an angle grinder in the vicinity of an oxygen cylinder, that's something you might want to think about before rather than than after you turn it on. But also the second defendant carried out some kind of risk assessment, he said, too. The issue he had there was that that basically wasn't documented, involved him walking up and down the aircraft, keeping an eye out. But he didn't have the requisite experience or skill to consider that there might be oxygen cylinders located behind these metal panels, whereas a specialist, someone experienced with aircraft, would have done. That was the court's finding. So risk assessments, certainly not sufficient or suitable. The court actually went into, as you said, Allison and Kennedy as well, and went through some of the important quotes from those judgments to the effect that a risk assessment is really important and should be a blueprint for action. So a defendant who hasn't carried out a suitable and sufficient one isn't going to find themselves on particularly strong ground when the court is considering breaches of duty. A defendant who takes suitable precautions despite not carrying out or documenting a proper risk assessment still isn't liable, of course. Yes, it's it's a causation argument which is often pleaded in defences as well. Would the risk assessment have identified 
further measures which would have you know, avoided the accident. Uh, and it's often pleaded as a backstop. But I'm with you. If you haven't undertaken and documented a risk assessment, you do tend to start on the back foot when it comes to reconstructing matters with the benefit of hindsight. I, I suppose what we've got then in this particular case, not unexpectedly, it's one of those basket of cases where you'd probably expect an expert engineer or similar to have been instructed to prepare a proper method statement and risk assessment on how this could safely be dismantled because it's, it's serious heavy machinery and equipment. And there's probably a middle basket of cases where you might be able to say as employer, well, actually an experienced and senior employee was capable of doing this work. And then there's probably another basket of cases, isn't there, where a dynamic risk assessment could be undertaken by the more junior employee on the ground. And you know, a prime example might be a DPD driver or similar event, someone who, where it's unreasonable to expect the employer to go to every house, whereas some overall generic training can then lead dynamic risk assessments to the employee. I suppose I'm, I'm trying to draw out the different ways in which risk assessments can be approached in a particular circumstance, Ben. Yes, well, I suppose the more technical the work, the more dangerous or technical the workplace, the more skilled the person carrying out the risk assessment might need to be. Those cases where you've got the risk assessment being left to the employee on the ground are off the top of my head, I think you're right. Those cases where you've got a workplace that's sort of ever changing, where, as you said, a DPD driver might be going to various different houses and the employer couldn't possibly realistically go and look at and risk assess all of those properties, but they can and still should be giving their employee the skills to carry out the assessment themselves with training and instruction. I tend to find some of the more difficult cases are where you have a more experienced or senior employee who's involved in an accident and the question mark is the extent to which some other employee or some other third party should a risk assess matters where the claimant was particularly experienced in the work he was undertaking and, and quite often there might be some careful scrutiny needed of training records as well to the extent to which the injured claimant was refreshed and up to speed with his method statement and risk assessment training. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole thrust of employers' liability law is that there is a power imbalance there. And therefore, it's not that easy for an employer to hand over responsibility to their employee, an injured employee. And the same kind of considerations factor into arguments on contributory negligence often as well, don't they? That the onus is very much on the employer because of the power imbalance. We'll move on from this case shortly, Ben. I think there was a foreseeability argument run by the defendants. They tried to argue that this specific risk was not foreseeable. That's an argument which is bad in law. It got short shrift. Hughes and the Lord Advocates, um, well-known House Lords case on this. It is sufficient that the accident is of a type which should have been foreseen. The question was whether the presence of explosive items was foreseeable, which it was, rather than this specific explosive item there were some other causation arguments and contributory negligence arguments run by the defendants. And I think they all got short shrift as well, Ben. And we had the claimant ultimately unscathed, really, by the, the mud thrown by the defendants in this particular case. Yes. I mean, the foreseeability point is one, again, you often see where 
the defendants tried to make play of the fact that the precise circumstances of this accident, i.e. the claimant drilling through a metal plate into an oxygen cylinder hidden behind it that no one knew was there, that's really, really unusual. How could we possibly have foreseen that? And you're right, it's something to be aware of. It's bad in law. It's not the specific accident you necessarily need to be alive to. It's just the risk in general, in broad terms, that you should have been on notice of and then should have led to control measures which would have prevented the accident. So there were various points run here that the court saw through. The defendants were, it looks like, trying everything they could to wriggle out of what was not a good position for them and the claim succeeded. One thing of note that was interesting was that once the court had found that both defendants were liable, it didn't seek to carry out any kind of apportionment because it hadn't been requested to which is obviously good news for claimant. He's got two defendants on the hook for the full amount. May have suited the defendants, but it's just something to bear in mind as defendants. If you want that apportionment to be considered, it's something to ask the court to deal with. Should we look at Lewin and Gray? I think we should, Ben. It's a more recent Kins Bench Division case from early this year. Well, at least it was reported in January this year. Facts are these. Claimant, self-employed builder, no question of his experience, 30 years in the job. He's engaged by defendant farmer to install gutter into the roof of the barn. Roof is fragile, that's known to everyone. Defendant double-checked with the claimant that he's going to use roof boards to stabilise him whilst he's carrying his work. Claimant confirms yes. Claimant falls off the boards and through the roof onto the ground below. Really severe injuries, I think. Very much so, and I, you know, I suspect, I mean, it's a claim without giving too much weight, claim fails on liability, but I suspect the potential level of injuries and the value of the claim informed why it was pressed on, because it's agreed that the Occupies Liability Act applied, but also including its provisions relating to independent contractors, and of course, claimant is the independent contractor. So under the Occupies Liability Act, with provisions for independent contractors, Basically, the onus is on them, on the claimant in this situation, to look after himself if he is engaged in something that is his area of expertise rather than the customer. Exactly. So the more novel argument, which was sort of front and centre of what the claimant was arguing, was that defendant farmers are commercial clients and therefore had a duty under the construction regs to ensure that a construction phase plan was drawn up by the claimants. What might a construction phase plan have said? Might that have dealt with safety precautions the claimant's going to take when he's carrying out this work from height? Is, is that the kind of thing it might have said? Precisely. In reality, how realistic was that when you've got this sort of relatively non-commercial arrangement? Not entirely sure, but that was the argument. The defendant did have a duty under these regulations to ensure that some kind of construction phase plan had been drawn up by his workmen. Indeed. So breach of the regulations was established. Claimant says civil liability arises. Court disagrees, I think, Ben, doesn't it? So we're in this Cockrell and Tonkins territory again, aren't we? And the question is whether... This is one of those cases in which a breach of regulations leads to a finding of negligence. And in this case, the court says no. And why was that then? The answer, <laughs> I'm glad you asked me that, James. <laughs> the answer to that is probably because 
it's at the outside of the established categories of common law liability. For example, the duty to provide a safe system of work, duty to provide a safe workplace and properly train colleagues, things like that. Those things the courts are so used to dealing with in day-to-day cases that they're very, very comfortable in saying that a breach of those kind of regulations would lead to a finding of negligence. But much less comfortable, clearly, here when confronted with a situation that, on its facts, would seem a bit odd, wouldn't it? When you've got, particularly in light of the Occupiers Liability Act, which specifically excludes liability for risks that arise in the context of the workman's own expertise. It would be a bit odd to find that a breach of this regulation should flow into a finding of negligence. But interesting that this is one of those situations where that's the finding, right? I can't think of many cases where that has happened since the ERRA kicked in. I agree. It's it's usually the case that the courts finds that negligence follows the breach of duty being established because more often than not, the breach is said to speak for negligence on the part of the employer. But a line in the sand here, it'd be interesting whether this one goes up on appeal. Uh, I suspect the decision would be upheld, would be my impression. Yeah, so the position we seem to have is it is agreed broadly that a breach of regulations will often lead to negligence and is certainly relevant when the court is considering whether there's been a breach of duty at common law. But there is a line at which the statute that came in in 2015 bites. And it's not just limited to those Stark and Post Office cases where we're talking about strict liability under the regulations. This is one of those categories where it's a bit more nuanced than that. And the other nuance I think we have to bear in mind for those listening is that there'll be other cases where it's more difficult to unpick the potential liability of occupiers and employers. One of the key cases is McCook and Lobo neutral citation from 2002, but you'll often see cases where it's far less obvious that an occupier should be absolved from any liability where work is being carried out on its premises, particularly if it retains control or has assumed responsibility for some aspects. And of course, in the classic case where there remains a danger in the state of the premises, such that they are unlikely to escape easily breach of the common duty of care. Yeah, the watchword again is control, isn't it? And so whether it's something that really is in the control and remit of the workman, the independent contractor, or whether it's something that the claimant has either involved themselves in or hasn't sufficiently warned the workman of. I think that brings us neatly on to the next case we're going to look at, which which is Holdley and Siemens. Kins Bench Division reported decision from the 11th of October 2022. The facts don't make easy reading, do they, Ben? Traumatic amputation of the left arm. Claimant was an offshore wind turbine technician working for the defendant, working on a turbine. He thought the machinery was immobilized and put his arm in to what proved to be very slow moving parts. A slow motion amputation of your arm, not a good one. I know, and defendant's position, and we touched upon this earlier, things may have gone wrong, but even allowing for that, 
claimant had instructions and training that would have prevented the accident. Yeah, so their headline defence was that this was one of those never events, that the bottom line for the claimant was he had been trained, you do not put your arms in moving parts unless and until you have checked that the machinery has been isolated and is no longer mobile. So on the face of it, you can see why they defend it. Well, well, they think they might have a good point, but the court didn't agree. Yes, because I think what had happened was that colleagues had been working on this particular feature or part of the machinery earlier that day, and they'd mobilised the machinery without warning others in direct contravention of the defendant's safe system of work. So we've got negligence by co-workers for which the defendant's going to be vicariously liable. And I think that tips us from an argument about primary liability into one about contributory negligence, Ben. That's right. I mean, the court bore in mind just how dangerous this machinery was if you got your hands caught in it, you were going to lose an arm. And just therefore how careful an employer should be before letting your employees near it. In fact, this piece of machinery appeared to be stationary. It was moving so slowly, unless you looked at it at the right moment when certain things behind it were in view, you might be forgiven for looking at it and, and thinking it's not moving at all. Yeah, and the key factor, I think, was that the defendant was found that it should have had some form of key-operated barrier which isolated the machinery, but it only used a chain. So therefore, there's an in there, isn't there, for the courts to find, actually, it's not just a case of your safe system of work not being followed, including by the claimant. Actually, it's not a sufficiently safe setup in the first place. And that gives the in. Good point, because it's not just about having a safe system. It's about implementing it and it can work the other way around as well. Just because you implement your system as a defendant doesn't necessarily mean you're off the hook. But it was interesting here, the finding was still a third contributory negligence. And that was on the basis primarily that the claimant didn't follow his headline instruction. And it seems like on the facts, he'd also walked past a control panel on the way to this part of the machine, which if he'd glanced at it, it would have told him the power was on. So there were a couple of things he did wrong that the defendant had tried to say, you know, entirely absolved them. But the court said amounted to conneg only. And, and I suppose a third might reflect that power imbalance again, James, and how the courts approach that. Yes. And again, it comes back to the fact that the employee, as part of his work operations, has to work with equipment, which poses a very serious risk of injury. So one can see why, although arguably what he might have failed to do is fairly serious and arguably could have resulted in a starting point of a higher finding of contribution negligence, such as the failing of the defendant in combination with the level of injury, that I think a third seems fair, Ben. Yeah, no problem with that at all. That probably brings us on to Carr, doesn't it? Probably the most interesting case of recent months. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the few recent cases that actually grapples with some of the key points on the law, I think, is claimant falls from an overhead platform while loading cars onto a car transporter and fractures his skull. There's a corroded safety rail. There was an independent contractor engaged to ensure the transporter's roadworthiness. So that all sounds a fairly straightforward initial set of facts. It was far from it, though. 
Well, exactly, because claimants are director and sole director of the defendant, isn't he? Yes, he owns, I think, 80% of the company and the other shareholder is his wife or long-term partner, certainly. So he is the controlling mind for all intents and purposes. So, so that was one interesting issue the court had to grapple with. And that was certainly the, the main basis of the defendant's defence. But the other question was whether the defendant was responsible for the fault of this independent contractor it had engaged to handle regulatory compliance. So we've got claimant's a sole director and it's claimant who's engaged the independent contractor and it's therefore where the defendant is effectively vicariously liable for the fault of the independent contractor engaged by the claimant's a sole director. Yeah, quite an interesting setup, I suspect, in court because the claimant is suing his company and the other sort of serious party to the case, or at least the other major witness to the case, is also the independent contractor that he'd engaged. So was claimant an employee of the defendant? Well, the court said yes. I mean, it's not something I'd come across before, but the court said yes without any difficulty. And in fact, when you see the case law that the court referred to, it looks like that's pretty set in stone from prior authority, that you can be both sole director of a company and its employee. The court ran through a number of factors from guidance set down by the courts previously in a case called Clark as to what might point towards someone being an employee despite being sole director. And that included things like whether the person had been paid as an employee, had paid tax and national insurance as this claimant had, and uh, on the face of it, for that reason, he was entitled to the rights of an employee. So claimant gets over the first hurdle, he's an employee, probably follows, doesn't it, that he's going to be owed the usual duty of care at common law, the employer's duty of care then? Yes. So the court quoted the paragraph from Stokes and Guest that we've all seen a lot of times, which effectively says you've got a duty to provide what a safe place of work, safe system of work, properly trained colleagues and so on and so forth, and said that it was uncontroversial in this case that that would have included proper inspection and maintenance of the safety rail. So the court found that the independent contractor had been negligent in those respects, i.e. the independent contractor should have prompted the claimant to arrange an inspection that would have discovered that defect. The question was whether the employer was on the hook for the contractor's negligence. An imposing threshold you'd think for the claimant to meet, but court's analysis was employer's duty to maintain a safe system of works non-delegable. So defendant was directly liable to the claimant for his independent contractor's failure. Yes. When you actually look at the court's analysis of that, again, it doesn't seem as surprising because they looked at Lord Sumption's judgment from the, was it the Woodland case, the, the lifeguard who broke his neck in the swimming pool? Um, they looked at, at that and, and quoting from the judgment and from commentary that followed from that, I think in, in some of the leading textbooks, that had specifically anticipated this, that employers' duty to their employees is precisely one of those categories that would be non-delegable. Non-delegable duty, so defendants directly liable, 
on the facts, defendants not vicariously liable for the independent contractor's negligence because defendant does not have sufficient control over his business on the classic sort of vicarious liability analysis. So we've got direct liability for a breach of a non-delegable duty, but no vicarious liability for the independent contractor. The claim would have failed on that ground. That, I mean, that's been a movable feast for some time, hasn't it? Vicarious liability. But the direction of travel in perhaps more recent cases, including that Manchester City case involving the sexual abuse of, of young apprentices by some of their coaches, it seems to be tilting away slightly from employers being on the hook for the, or vicariously on the hook for the actions of, of independent contractors. And the factual issue here was that primarily this contractor was in business for himself, did things as he saw fit, spent a lot of his time not working for this company. And so there just wasn't that requisite control. Nonetheless, claimants already established that the duty was non-delegable and the defendant is directly liable for the contractor's failure. So that's okay. But they also found for the claimant or would have found for the claimant on another basis as well, didn't they? Yes, there was a claim under the Employees' Liability Defective Equipment Act 1969, Ben, which is it's often pleaded in, but often doesn't have much light shone on it when it comes to these decisions. But that claim would have succeeded on a straightforward application of the section. Claimant was an employee injured at work caused by defective equipment provided by his employer, at least partly due to the fault of a third party here, the independent contractor. So direct liability for the defendant and liability under the 1969 Act. And this left the defendant's defence splintered, I think, Ben, is the right word. Yeah, I mean, it was just what we're talking about, the, uh, the Defective Equipment Act. It was interesting to see just how quickly and easily the court dealt with that without any hesitation in one paragraph, just runs through the wording of the section and finds for the claimant on that basis. And the fact that we don't see it very often does not mean that we shouldn't be using it or alive to the risks posed by it. Absolutely, Ben. The defendant's main defence had been reliance on the Brumder decision that the claimant was looking to benefit from his own wrong. And the court looked at that and said that defence only applies where the breach of duty is entirely the claimant's fault, i.e. the defendant's negligence is completely aligned with the claimant's. And it, it found that wasn't the case, but it, it did go on to give us a split decision on contra-neg, didn't it, Ben? Yeah, you can see why the defendant ran that defence again, but it would probably be more difficult to run it in future, I would have thought, because there's quite a detailed analysis of that defence. And the ultimate position was that the breaches that can be identified almost have to be entirely the claimants before the defendant can, can fall back on that. So I think it's, it's a helpful decision for claimants in several ways, not only for the emphasis on the analysis of whether or not a sole director can be an employee, but also the focus it gives to direct liability and the 1969 Act, Ben. So it's Probably a good decision to look up, particularly where you've got a non-delegable duty owed by an employer, but the potential negligence of an independent contractor who, for whatever reason, might not have deep pockets or otherwise. Because obviously, 
you're always entitled to pursue your employer who owes you a non-delegable duty. Yeah, it's interesting how often these things turn on their facts and how the question of control is where you always come back to. Whose responsibility really is this stuff? And it's only really if it's entirely the claimants and or the defendants have sufficiently given the claimants the skills they need to protect themselves that these defences really work, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. We've looked at several cases. Only in one of those cases has the defence actually prevailed, perhaps not too unsurprisingly. They remain difficult cases to defend employers' liability cases. Now, absent that strong evidence of very good systems and very good training. I, I hope this review of some of those recent cases has been helpful. I've certainly found it helpful then, actually, just to refresh my mind on some of the issues, particularly as regards control and risk assessments. Yeah, well, obviously, James, I'm, I read these decisions the moment they come out. So <laughs> uh, it, it was just a question of refreshing my memory. But uh, it's nice to bring you along and, and you know keep you up to date as well every now and then. Thank you to everyone who's listened to this podcast. If you have any queries arising out of today's podcast, please do drop Ben and I an email. It's available on the website. Alternatively, please do check our website, stjohnschambers.co.uk, or contact the clocks, and we'd be happy to help. There will be a new exciting podcast from the team out soon as well. But for now, live from this St. John's Chambers recording studio, it's bye from me. (laughs) And goodbye from me.